I'm reading from Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. Dead to sin, alive to God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This is the word of God. It's good to be here this morning. I want you to imagine... Um, Niagara Falls. I've never been to them, seen them on television. I'm sure it's a little different seeing them in person. Um, and I want you to imagine all of the mighty force of water that rushes over, cascades over those, those, those waterfalls, the millions of gallons that just rush down, and the immense weight crashing down beneath those falls. And I want you to imagine taking a five-gallon bucket and walking up trying to catch some water out of that. Um, I would dare you to try to do it with Tom's Creek Falls up in Woodlawn, but let alone Niagara Falls. I bring that to your mind this morning because the immensity of rushing water over the top of that can be a descriptor for how the Bible, the New Testament, explains the grace of God towards sinners. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God's grace is lavished upon us. Niagara Falls lavished upon us. You can't catch it all in your rinky-dink five-gallon bucket. It overflows you, knocks the bottom out of the bucket type of grace. Keeps you full and overflowing type of grace. John chapter 1 verse 16 says, From his fullness we have received, and grace Upon grace. It's almost as if the New Testament writers didn't even know how to describe it. They just threw words together. Grace upon grace. That's what we've received. What that means is that you cannot out the grace of God. You cannot sin so much or so deeply... As we've just saying, where sin runs deep, your grace is what? More. There is no individual in this room who has sinned so heinously or so repetitively or so consistently that God's arm does not reach out to you 
with Niagara Falls grace, grace upon grace. As a matter of fact, Paul has just said in Romans 5.20, prior to our passage here in chapter 6, he says that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Or you might say it this way, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. That is how powerful the grace of God is for sinners sitting in this room and standing on this stage this morning. But the problem that can emerge when we begin to grasp just the first, just the outskirts of what it means that God is gracious towards sinners, the problem that can occur is that we can use that as a license to just sin freely and to just live our lives in wanton sin without any concern over its effect on our lives or its effect on the heart of God. Because we conclude, as Paul here says in Romans 6, shall we sin so that grace may increase? I dare say that there are individuals in this room who are so logically minded, and I have ran into people like this. This isn't just hypothetical. Call them, call them theoretical theologians, that they, that they are so logically minded that they deduce from the grace of God and that if there's more sin, then there must be more grace and that must bring more honor to God. Then I, must, I should just continue in sin because it's going to get more grace. And that's a good thing, right? So sin must be a good thing. And I've met people who have thought along that line. And Paul looks at them in anticipation that that's what people would say and says, no, no, are you crazy? No. Throughout history, Christians have arisen in the church who have taught this very thing. It is not just hypothetical. The early 1600s, Anne Hutchinson in the Massachusetts Bay Colony taught this exact thing and amassed around her an enormous following of people, created a big schism in the Massachusetts Bay, and they ended up exiling her out of the colony because she taught this very thing. In the late 1800s, a man by the name of Rasputin in Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church, taught this very thing. And in, in Paul's day, apparently it had become a significant enough issue in the 30 years, roughly 25 years, of the ministry that he had led up until the writing of this letter, the book of Romans. He had seen people respond to his teaching of, hey, God's grace is greater than your sin. And they have concluded, well, it doesn't matter if I sin then. As a matter of fact, grace must free me to sin, is what they conclude, rather than really understanding what it means that grace frees me from sin. The rest of us, well, a lot of us, most of us, we hear that theory and we think, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, I can understand how people could kind of deduce this, but let's just use some common sense here. There's no way that it's okay for us to sin. And that's kind of where you are. And yet, I'll say that you're not immune to this same temptation yourself. Call you the practical theologians. You're not going to deduce it in some sort of logical framework like the theoretical guys. But when it becomes practical for you, you are going to fall into this same trap. Here's how it looks. Tomorrow morning, got a biology test at Montreat or at McDowell High, Western Piedmont, Spanish test or whatever it is, and you've not studied all weekend long. As a matter of fact, I'm saying this and you're probably thinking about a test that you have tomorrow that you've not studied for. 
You sit down at your desk and sitting next to you is the class nerd. And you know they're going to ace this thing. You begin looking over their shoulder and A, B, D, and then you start writing down the answers and you've, you cheat on the test so that you can make a good grade and you, you, you justify it in your mind. You say, yeah, I, gotta get, I know it's wrong, I know it's sinful, but I'll do what later? Any idea? Ask for forgiveness. You've done this. I, the reason why I know you've done this is because I have done this and I still do this. You lie to your boss to make yourself look better than you actually are or to save your hide for something. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. Or you're even contemplating leaving your spouse because you're just tired of them. No biblical justification, no adultery, no abandonment. You're just sick of the relationship and and yet you're a follower of Jesus and you think, he'll forgive me. I know it's wrong, but his grace will cover this on down the road. I'll repent. I'll turn away from it. Shall we sin so that grace may increase? Is something directed to every person in this room? We all fall prey to this temptation. To use grace as a license to sin freely. Say grace frees us to sin whenever Paul is saying here, no, 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 no. Grace does not free you to sin. It frees you from sin. There is no way that God sent his son to die a gruesome death on a cross so that you could go on living a heinously sinful life. No, he went to that length to free you from that life. And so when Paul begins to contemplate this, shall we sin so that grace may increase? He says in the New American Standard Version, may it never be. And then in the English Standard Version, Uh, certainly not, or however else your translation puts this, which are pitiful translations for what Paul is actually saying here. Pitiful translations. He uses a Greek phrase which is the heaviest and weightiest way in the Greek language that he could convey any sort of prohibition. And so it would be akin to you saying uh, to your your, your, your 16-year-old son comes to you, and he, uh, he's just got his license last weekend, and, and he says, uh, Dad, can I take the, uh, the brand-new Mustang GT to, uh, to Myrtle Beach this weekend? They're having a rod run. And you're just like, no. Use the Greek phrase that Paul uses here. He uses the phrase, meganoita is what he says. You look at your kid and say, meganoita. That's what Andrew talked about this Sunday. Your daughter walks up to you. She's 14. She wants to date this guy. You say, how old is he? He's, he's 19. Uh-uh. No. That's what Paul's saying here. Shall we sin so that grace may increase? Uh-uh. Is what Paul's saying. As a matter of fact, a better translation of it is, are you crazy? That's ridiculous. No way, Jose. That's uh, some of the more academic commentaries put it that way. No, it's actually asinine in Paul's mind that anybody would ever come to faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for your sins, and actually think, oh, I could just go on sinning. No, you completely misunderstand what has happened to you if that's where you operate from. And so Paul takes us to understand what has happened to you. So what has happened to us? 
Paul brings us to two things. When you've come to Christ, you've placed your faith in him, two things have happened to you. You have died to sin, and you are alive to God. You have died to sin, and you are alive to God. As Paul says, do you not know? Or, back up, verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How can you remain in it if you've died to sin? So question that comes into all of our minds. Yeah, I've placed faith in Jesus. But what's this even mean? How have I died to sin? How has that happened to me? And Paul's answer is, it's actually pretty difficult for us to understand on, at first blush. It doesn't make much sense to us immediately until we think about it. Paul says that you died to sin through baptism. Through baptism. Listen, verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Through baptism we have died to sin. So what does that mean? Does that mean that in order for me to be free from sin, on March the 8th, if I've not taken the plunge, I actually have to go drown myself underneath the water? Hopefully not drown. Is that what that means? Do I have to be dunked underneath the water in order to be free from my sin? You ought to be baptized, but you must. It's not a necessity. Nowhere in the Bible is baptism a necessity for salvation. It is a symbol of what has happened to you in salvation. Baptism, as a matter of fact, is a transliteration of a Greek word. And we've just simply taken a Greek word and put it in an English way. The Greek word is baptizo. We call it baptize. The literal translation of it is immerse. To submerge. The idea was used uh, to baptize cloth with people who dyed cloth they would baptize it in the water so that it would be soaking up all of the the dye that's the idea immerse so when Paul says you are baptized into Christ Jesus you can read there you were immersed into Christ Jesus not through water through faith you were consumed by Jesus Christ so that what happened to Christ happened to you. You died to sin because Christ died to sin. You were buried with Christ. You were crucified with Christ. The New Testament says it over and over. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You have died to sin. Now the reason why Paul uses the term baptize here is because in the early church, baptism had become shorthand for conversion. It was a way of saying that you had become a believer. So today, if I were to walk up to Will here and I would say, I want to know if he's a Christian, I'll say, Will, have you ever, you ever trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he'd say, yeah, I have. Or, or I'd walk up to Spencer and I'd say, hey, Spencer, do you, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. There you go. Yes, sir. But if it was 2,000 years ago, I would walk up to Bethany Dages and I'd say, Bethany, have you been baptized? It was a demarcation, baptism was, from an old way of life to a new way of life. It was the dividing line. 
by being baptized, you were saying to the world, no more. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. His death is my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. A few weeks ago, to sort of illustrate this, Danielle and I were watching a documentary. No surprise there. Big nerds. On the mafia. Sorry, but that's what we were watching. And there was an interesting account about how a person was inducted into the mafia. They identify someone that has proven themselves to be reliable and so on and so forth. And so they bring them into a room with several of the leaders of the mob family right there. And uh, the, the individual would walk forward. And he'd stand there and hold out his hands. They would cut his hands so he'd bleed. And they'd place a card of a saint in their hands and light it on fire. It would burn. They'd let it burn until it was consumed in their hands. And then the ash, hot ash, I think this is a very painful thing, they'd take and rub together into the cut and let it fall to the ground. And in so doing... The language that these mafia members would actually use is that this person was born again. They would call this a baptism of sorts. They were saying, I am cut off from my old way of life. I belong to the mafia. In fact, so important was this this symbolism that the only way they'd get out of the mafia is through being killed, right? Now, we don't take it quite that far as Christians, thankfully. (laughs) But the importance, the significance of that right, as as you can feel the weight of what that must be like for a man to walk up and give his life to the mafia, that's what baptism was in the early church. You are completely and totally separating yourself from this and binding yourself to a community of people who say they've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You no longer live. Christ lives in you. So if you have been immersed spiritually and then symbolically, you know, you you, you portray that by being baptized, dead, buried, raised back up to life. Paul is saying, do you not know that you have died to sin? You've died to sin. God didn't show you grace so you could be free to sin. He showed you grace so you could be free from sin. Set you free, you're dead to it. But I know what is arising in so many hearts, perhaps every single heart in this room in response to this. You hear me say, yeah, you're dead to sin. You're dead to it if you've trusted Christ. You're dead to it. But yet, in every single seat, you're sitting here thinking, boy, I sure don't live that way. I mean, actually, sin certainly doesn't seem dead to me. It seems very much alive to me, actually. It seems to have a lot of power, actually. I mean, I still got my addictions. I still got my anger problem. I'm still hateful to my kids, sarcastic to my wife. 
dishonest on my timesheet. Yes, yeah, sin seems to still, still pull some, some authority in my life. How can you look at me and say it doesn't rain anymore? To which I say, I share your same sentiments. And to which I say, this passage never claims that sin does not reign. This passage never claims that sin does not still have power. In fact, this passage never claims that sin has died. According to this passage, sin is still very much alive. It's you who have died to sin. And that's the difference. It's like sin has been king in Sin City. And you once lived in Sin City. But through immersing yourself into Jesus Christ, you now live in God country where God is king. You're no longer in that old authority structure where sin called the shots in your life and you had no option but to live in sin and absolutely everything you did was completely stamped and defined by sin where you did not serve the creator but you served the creation every day of your life namely yourself you worshiped yourself And you experienced what the Bible has to say about idolatry, that those who worship idols, that the idol actually consumes the life of the person who worships it. And so you learned by experience day after day that living in Sin City under the authority and obedience to sin, your experience was that you were dying daily, your life taken from you. And the ultimate power and authority that Sin King would have over you was that when you died... Physically, sin would reign entirely over you. There would be nothing beyond that death except for eternal death in hell. Sin rules. Romans says that the wages of sin is death. And so you serve sin in sin city your whole life. Sin will pay you back. It's compensation is it kills you. Your body in this life and your soul in the next life. But Paul is saying here, not for the Christian. Not for the person who has been immersed into Jesus Christ. They have a new king. And in fact, instead of being dead to, not just being dead to sin, they are now alive to God. Alive to God. As he says several times in this passage, So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 6, knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Sin is no longer your master. You are alive to a new king, a new authority, a new power, a good God. who rules in in your life and calls the shots. But here's the problem. Here's the problem that we all face as we live this life dead to sin and alive to God. In 1973, August August 23rd through the 28th, 
There was a man who entered a bank. And there he took hostage four individuals and put them into a bank vault. Held them there for six days. Over the course of that six days, police tried to set them free. And the whole time, this man was talking to the prime minister on the phone saying, if you do not pull these police officers away, I will kill these hostages. Rescue attempts began to happen. And what the police began to discover was that as they were attempting to rescue these individuals, these individuals were preventing the rescue operations from taking place. These hostages were not allowing themselves to be rescued. This continued to happen. Finally, they rescued them, and then after the fact, this man goes for trial, and the very captives, the ones he was threatening to kill, began to defend him. Try to, pre- try to get him off the hook, prevent him from going to prison. This event took place 1973 in a town called Stockholm, Sweden. And we know the phenomenon today as Stockholm Syndrome. It's whenever it's a legitimate psychological phenomenon, whenever someone is traumatically held hostage or captive by an individual, that they begin to sympathize, empathize, and identify with their captor, and in fact care for their captor and defend their captor. We as Christians, living on the outskirts of Sin City in, the, in God country, we suffer from Stockholm Syndrome. We look back at our old king, Sin, and we think, man, it was really, it was so much better for me when I was with King Sin in Sin City. We're like the Israelites when they left Egypt and go through the wilderness and we look back at Egypt and we think, yeah, sure, I was a slave, but man, I had, I had some food on the table and a place to sleep. Paul looks at us and says, do you not know that you were set free from sin? It was a ruthless slave master. It offered promises that it could not keep. And as a matter of fact, it was guiding you to hell every step of the way trying to kill you. You have been set free. Why would you live in sin anymore? You have, been, you have died to sin and you are alive to God. And you hear me talk about this this morning and you think, yeah, I feel the motivation. I want to live to God and I want to die to sin and I want to say no to, to, to sin city and to king sin. So how do I do that? And Paul tells us how you live to God in verse 11. He says, even so, even so, since you know you're dead to sin and alive to God, that's what I've showed you so far. You're dead to sin and alive to God. Even so, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What's he mean by that? He means you've got to think better than you're thinking currently. You can't let your mind just go on autopilot and let experience and circumstance tell you what is taking place. You have to look at the word of God and say, this is what is true of me in Jesus Christ. I am dead to sin and alive to God. Sin no longer is master over me. Jesus is master over me. And he's much better than sin ever dreamed of being. Abundant life today, eternal life tomorrow. 
And we continually tell this to ourselves day after day. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Oh, how he has set me free. Oh, how good it is to walk with the Lord. And we remind ourselves day after day, consider yourselves. Think about yourselves rightly. I am not a sinner. I am not. That's not what I'm defined by. I am a saint. I belong to God. I belong to Jesus. Think rightly about yourself. And as you think rightly, as you process and let your mind guide you by the word of God, then Paul tells you what you then do. He says, since this is true of you, your identity is dead to sin, alive to God, and you're thinking about yourself this way, he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. You see, it's like sin is a dethroned king, but he's an outlaw, and he's still there with his six-shooter saying, do what I say. He's still trying to call the shots, still trying to reign in your life, but he's dethroned. He no longer has power. You have a new king, a new authority, a new power. And so Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let sin call the shots in your life. Do not go on presenting the members of your body, your hands, your eyes, your tongue, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. It shall not. Why? And here's the power. This is what gives you the strength to do this. As you have been told what you are, you're dead to sin and alive to God. As you've been taught to think rightly about yourself, this is what's true of me. I'm dead to sin and alive to God. Here's the power, the gasoline that drives the engine. Why, are you, why will sin not be your master? Because you are not under law, but under grace. Grace, that Niagara Falls type of grace that we started out talking about. See, law, it's like this external list of commands. Ten commandments and the additional commands that God gives to us. And then the prerequisite written at the bottom, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Nothing short of perfection will enter into my presence. And you look at the list, and you see that nowhere close to perfection. As a matter of fact, I'm guilty of every single thing on the list. And I've discovered that as I've seen God's commands, that it was as if sin inside of me just took opportunity with each additional command, and I was just... I found new ways to be disobedient, new ways to sin, and it's just like this crazy sin factory that I am and so sin takes the law and it hangs it over your head and says condemned no hope lost powerless wicked but then God after you have clung to Jesus and believed in the cross and believed that it applies to you and his crucifixion covers you. 
God doesn't give you this external list of commands anymore. Christ met those commands on your behalf, and instead he infuses within you grace. Niagara Falls grace, grace that overflows the bucket and knocks the bottom out of it, grace. Lavished grace, grace upon grace. So that now it's no longer this list that you can't meet, but it is at a power and ability within yourself enabling you to please God. It's the very Spirit of God within you. As Romans 8 says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then, then, he, then he will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You're dead to sin, and you are alive to God. That's what Paul wants us to understand. That's what Christ wants us to understand. So let us live that way. Let's experience the power that comes from living a life of freedom. Not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. Oh, the power, the liberty, the serenity, the peace that God has provided for us if we would just consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to close here in a few minutes with a time of invitation. Two things to do in response to this sermon. First of all, there are some of you here who are completely and totally ruled by sin. When I speak of Jesus having set you free, that does not apply to you. Because you've never immersed yourself into Jesus by faith. Never let his death be your death, his burial, your burial, his resurrection, your resurrection. The only thing that prevents that from being today is your surrender. The only thing that prevents you from knowing Christ is your pride or your fear. And yet Jesus is calling to you, grace upon grace. No sin can I, there is no no depth of sin that I will not overflow with grace. And so I ask you, I plead with you, if that's something you need, either write it down on your connection card or grab somebody or, or even come up and talk to me so that I can pray with you and introduce you to Christ who was crucified on your behalf. Other people who may want to respond are those who have lived as if you were still a slave to sin and yet you have been set free. And Jesus is just saying, may it never be. Do you not know that when I died for you, I completely set you free? Let me help you live in that freedom. 
as the praise team comes out, I hope that whatever it is that God's doing in our lives, that we would be free to respond to him this morning. I'll be down here as the, band, as the praise team plays. Let me close us in prayer. Our God, we love you and we are grateful for what you have done for us, Lord. Lord, will you please forgive me, Andrew Walker, for where I have allowed grace to just be a license to sin. And will you forgive me for where I have just trampled it underfoot and have not had high enough regard for what you have done for me on the cross, for not valuing the freedom that I have in Christ. I pray for a renewed vigilance and power to live in that freedom, to enjoy what you bought for me and to remember that I do not belong to myself I have been bought with, with a price and therefore I must glorify God with my body and I pray that this same unction and conviction would be upon every single individual heart in this room as you do the work in each life that only you and they know is taking place. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.